0: and true God. Peter writes, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs> In this uh, closing section of the letter, Peter lists a series of final imperatives as he is reminding this persecuted church of the fundamental attitudes necessary to stay steadfast in the midst of their suffering. These are really um, spiritual attitudes that are are building blocks to humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, um, you'll recall last week, Peter exhorted the elders in verses one through four. And what was their exhortation? Verse two said, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God, the elders, Primary focus is to shepherd the flock of God among you. And we covered that in detail last week. And now in verse 5, he turns from the shepherds to the sheep. And the first attitude that he addresses is the attitude of submission. The attitude of submission. And of course, if you've been with us throughout this whole epistle, you'll recall um, submission's been a regular theme throughout this epistle Uh, back in chapter 2 verse 13 you'll recall it said submit yourselves for the Lord's sakes to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him then again in chapter 2 verse 18 Peter wrote servants be submissive to your masters with all respect then again we saw in chapter 3 verse 1 in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. And now, in chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Now, he identifies here those who are younger. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it actually says younger men. But why does Peter say that? Why doesn't he just say all of you? Um, well, I'm doing a little bit of assuming here because he doesn't speak to why exactly, but I believe Peter certainly is speaking from experience. you recall when Peter was younger, he spent those three plus years with Jesus. And there were a lot of times when Jesus had to correct the younger Peter. As Peter often thought, he knew what was best for the Lord, did he not? And I know for myself growing up, I had a challenging time with submitting to those over me. Because, you know, when we're younger, we think we know it all, don't we? We know better than they do. (laughs) So maybe he's speaking to those younger men who might be aspiring to an elder's role within the church, or possibly these are just new converts to the faith. In any case, Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I also want you to notice in verse 5 that word, likewise, your Bible might say, in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way that the pastor shepherds the flock and feeds the flock in submission to the chief shepherd when he appears, remember verse four? You likewise, who are younger, be subject to the elders. And that word again, subject to is the word hupotasso, and it's the uh, military uh, term that means to, to get in line under, to get in line under the leadership. And so he's saying, in effect, everybody, but particularly you who are younger in the faith, get in line under the authority of these godly under shepherds, these pastors that that God has has placed over you, essentially is a call for respect, beloved. It is a call for honor for those who serve God in spiritual leadership. And I can tell you not from my personal experience, though I have experienced it, but primarily from those that I know, um, there is nothing that is more discouraging to a pastor than a congregation of people who show no respect for those who are in spiritual authority over them. It's it's tragic. And conversely, I can confess to you, there's nothing more discouraging to a congregation than irresponsible spiritual leadership. But where you have responsible, humble, God honoring leadership. You were to give respect and honor, submitting to their spiritual authority. It's a spiritual principle that should really permeate the life of the entire church. Be subject to your elders. And this is something that becomes a theme really on the heart of the Apostle Paul. You, you see him really struggle. Um, with this, especially with the Corinthian, uh, the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, challenging whether he was even an authentic apostle. But the Thessalonian church, he, he loved, he, though they were young in the faith, he, he couldn't say enough about these believers. He wanted them as an example to others. But if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 um, for a moment, um, chapter 5 is an important text. Um, come down to Uh, verse 12 um, Paul says but we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work he says live in peace with one another so Paul says to the Thessalonians, you need to appreciate those who are diligently uh, laboring among you, who have charge over you in the Lord. You are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In um, his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And again, who, who's an elder? Those who teach and preach. So again, Paul speaks of the honor for those who teach and preach, whose passion it is to feed the flock, who labor and pray and study all week for the sake of the flock and for the glory of God. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Um, this may be the most Um, direct and decisive text, there's a couple um, verses in Hebrews 13 um, I'd like to show to you. Verse 7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. He says, remember them, remember them, and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. The first thing he says is, the people who led you and taught you uh, who live out their spiritual life, you imitate their faith. But then notice down in verse 17, he goes further than just imitating their, their faith. It says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So your responsibility to God is to obey your leaders and submit to them. The leader's responsibility to God is to make sure their leadership is faithfully as it ought to be. And then this is so important. In the middle of verse 17, the writer says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I can tell you, nobody wants a grieving, heartbroken shepherd. If you suck out all of that joy of serving the body of Christ with the constant bickering and division and backsliding amongst the flock of God, ultimately it's distracting to the shepherd from his calling. It fills him with grief, thus making him essentially unprofitable for you and for the calling to serve and to shepherd and to feed the flock. One churchgoer uh, wrote an article about this text and talking about submission. He said, in submission, we engage the, the experience of those in our fellowship who are qualified to direct our efforts and growth and who then add the weight of their wise authority on the side of our willing spirit to help us do the things we would like to do and refrain from the things we don't want to do. They oversee the godly order in our souls as well as in our fellowship and in the surrounding body of Christ. I like how he said we engage in their experience. We engage um, in their wisdom, those who are qualified to direct our efforts in growth and who then add the weight of their wise authority. So the first attitude that Peter calls us to is to have an attitude of submission, an attitude of submission. But um, there's a second attitude that needs consideration that goes right along with the first one, as an attitude of attitude of Humility We continue in verse 5b, we'll call it. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The attitude of submission is a twin to the attitude of humility because only the truly humble will submit to Peter's commands. And did you notice how comprehensive now humility is? It's not just those of you who are younger. He says, for all of you, all of us, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is a one size that fits all garment. All right? Now this word for clothe is actually a really interesting word. It's not as plain as it might first appear. The word literally means in the Greek to tie something on oneself with a, a knot or a bow. And it had in mind a, a uh, work apron, a work apron that a servant would put on to cover his or hers clothes to keep them clean, uh, just like you might do if you work maybe at a shop or with your hands or doing the dishes or cleaning around the house, and you tie it around your waist with a knot or with a bow. And so here Peter's saying, Clothe yourself like that of a servant. Gird yourself with lowliness of mind. That's the word that humility means. With an attitude of submission and lowliness of mind. You're not too puffed up to to stoop low. But you're not too good to serve. And by the way, this attitude of humility... It was totally foreign to a pagan world. It certainly wasn't a virtue celebrated. Pride was celebrated. Humility was a virtue that you'd be mocked for, ridiculed, stopped over. The world will call you a wimp, just as it will today. Humility is for the weak and cowardly, and is an attitude reserved for servants to their masters. So Peter's saying, yeah, ah, likewise, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. You need to clothe yourself with the garment of submission and service to one another with humility and lowliness of mind. And I'm sure under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter's Lord once again has come to his mind as we think about that incredible scene recorded in John chapter 13 where it says that Jesus saw his disciples' feet and they were covered with all the filth from walking through the streets, but there was nobody there to clean them. And the Bible says that while the disciples were eating, Jesus rose from the table and he laid aside his outer garments, his his coat, and then he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And after that, he poured water into the basin and he stooped down and began washing his disciples' feet, wiping them with the towel that was girded around his waist. This is the perfect, sinless Son of God. Our Lord and our Christ, who has an attitude of total humility and submission to the Father when he came, He stooped down so low as to clothe himself with a slave's garment as he bent down and washed the filth off the feet of the disciples' dirty feet. And I'm sure this is an image Peter never forgot. And so here he says, all of you, clothe yourselves also with that same humility toward one another. Paul writing to the uh, church And Philippi, of course, stresses this well in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. And that's the key right there. In humility, we need to, we need to esteem others better than ourselves. Verse 4: Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, and now he gives us the example, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Isn't that incredible? That's how the Lord of heaven and earth came down and stooped that low. That low for us. That's what he did for you and that's what he did for me. He made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and died on the cross for our sins. And so Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also... In Christ Jesus. See, Christ always sets the standard for us. He always sets the standard. And so now this is the same attitude you and I need to have towards one another. So, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Gird yourselves with the garment of humility toward one another. Not to support his... um, command in verse 5 Peter quotes Proverbs 3 34 um, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament the Septuagint he says for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and I'm assuming this must have been an Old Testament axiom that was probably very common among the people because we see it here Peter quotes it but we also see um, James the brother of Jesus quotes it. James 4, 6 also says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a serious thing if you think about it. God opposes those who are proud. It's not something to mess around with. He's against those. God sets himself against those who are proud. Um, we see this throughout Scripture. For example, in Proverbs six sixteen. It speaks to this where it says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to Him. First thing on the list is haughty eyes, which is another word uh, way of saying pride or prideful. Pride is an abomination to God, and He makes that very clear in His Word. We actually see this again in Proverbs eight verse thirteen, Proverbs chapter eight verse thirteen, where it says, "To fear the Lord is to hate evil." I hate pride and arrogance. Evil behavior and perverse speech. God hates pride. It is evil to him. Think for a moment about what sin it was that had Lucifer thrown out of heaven. Was it not his pride? He says, of course, five different times in the text in Isaiah 14, I will, I will, I will. I will ascend to the heavens I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. It's all rooted in Satan's pride. But God's grace is reserved for the humble. And then um, who could forget what God himself said in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, who lives forever and whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, God says, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that something? God says, I live on a a high and holy place. And who lives there with me? Not the high and puffed up ones, but the one who is contrite and lowly of spirit. They live with me there. Those are the ones who are going to be living with me. Amazing. (coughs) glorious text is in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where again we have the words from the Lord himself. He says, has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now what does he mean there that God gives grace to the humble? He means blessing. God blesses the life of the humble and he opposes those who are proud. That's the context of this verse. And then notice how verse six further really enriches this thought. Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, therefore you better humble yourselves And not only to one another, but under the mighty hand of God. Now what does that mean? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That sounds kind of important. Well, we best not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We best not think we know better than God. We best not challenge the sovereign God and his infinite wisdom. Whatever he brings into our life, we best humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And that phrase, the mighty hand of God, is common throughout the Old Testament. So let me share just a couple of the scriptures that will help um, expound the, the richness of this. And, and these are, are really great. Um, for example, in, in Micah 6 8, um, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And And what is that? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Walk humbly with him. What does walk humbly mean? That you're walking under the mighty hand of God. Speaks to his sovereignty. Speaks to his power. And His wisdom. The mighty hand of God is an Old Testament symbol of His guiding and controlling power. That's what it means. It's the power of God working in the experience of man, always accomplishing His sovereign, loving purpose. The mighty hand of God means different things at different times. Sometimes the mighty hand of God is used to deliver the believer from trouble. Sometimes the mighty hand of God is used to protect the believer through a a time of testing, as we've seen in 1 Peter. It's a a shelter rather than a deliverance, maybe. Sometimes it's the mighty hand of God used as a chastening hand as God disciplines those he loves. But it is always sovereign, and it is always for his glory. Turn with me, and I want to show you a couple of examples of this real quickly. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, I want you to see this for yourself, the mighty hand of God at work. You'll recall in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is confronted by God at the burning bush, and God calls out to Moses to uh, lead his people out of their bondage in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, God says to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And so here the mighty hand of God becomes a mighty hand of what? Mighty hand of deliverance. God delivers his people as he strikes Pharaoh and his forces so we see here God's hand as a hand of deliverance, the mighty hand of deliverance. Turn with me for a moment to Job chapter 30. We, we could not skip out on the life of Job if we're looking at this topic. Job chapter 30 in verse 20, um, Job is, is oh, pouring out his heart as he's going through a terrible... Terrible season of testing. It's unbelievable just how terrible it got for for Job. Very hard to, to read. But in verse 20, Job says, I cry to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. So here the mighty hand of God is not the hand of deliverance. Not yet, at least. Here the mighty hand of God is the hand testing and refining so that he can come out pure as gold. So at the end of the day, he can say, Oh, my eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you like never before. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent of my sins, and in dust and ashes I lay. How on earth was Job able to endure all of this heartache and loss that he experienced, yet come out the other side of it, glorifying God? It's because the mighty hand of God that was upon Job, though it may appear appeared cruel to him at the time, was actually the mighty hand of the perfecting power of God that was refining and, and molding and chiseling the deepest Parts of Job's heart drawing him ever closer into an even deeper dependence upon him. God's mighty hand is always accomplishing his eternal purposes on behalf of his own. And for these persecuted believers that Peter's writing to, the assurance that they were under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you Man, that certainly would have encouraged Peter's readers to continue persevering in the faith as, as you can trust that God knows when that appointed time is and he will exalt you in due time. That idea of due time or the proper time is also throughout scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, This has now become witness at the proper time. In God's perfect timing, Christ gave himself as a ransom. Titus chapter 1 verse 3, Paul writes, But at the proper time he manifested even his word. The word of God came at the proper time. Christ came and died at the proper time. And your exaltation will come at the proper time time but in the meantime what are we to do we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of god most of you know the story of joseph from the book of genesis his brothers of course hated joseph out of jealousy as jacob his father all loved his son dearly and after joseph's dream and i think it was genesis chapter 37 This pushes his brothers right over the edge, and and they sell him into slavery after deciding not to kill them. And, you know, Joseph went through a lot aside of being sold into slavery. He was later falsely accused, was thrown into prison. And Joseph experienced these um, great highs, and he also went through these incredible lows. Well, after many years had passed, he sees his brothers again, and uh, he has this wonderful... A perspective about god 's sovereignty over his life in genesis fifty twenty he says to his brothers that 's for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. he was able to feed and uh, take care of all of those people um, through this but You see, sort of in the same way, Peter sees all these trials that his beloved churches are going through. And he's saying, God has meant it for good. Even though on a human level, they have meant it for evil. And they will be responsible and they will pay for their wicked, hardened hearts for everything that they do. But you can know the sovereign hand of God is over all of it. It's over all of it. At the proper time, he will exalt you. John MacArthur um, sums up these couple of verses by writing, if the foundational attitude for spiritual growth is submission, humility then is the footing to which the foundation is anchored. To become proudly rebellious and fight against the Lord's purposes or to judge his providence as unkind or unfair is to forfeit the sweet grace of his exaltation When the trial has fulfilled its purpose, see James 1, 2 through 4. It is the Lord himself who promised for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, 11, end of quote. So again, the question becomes, yeah, but how do we do it? How do we humbly submit under the mighty hand of God, especially in our trials? The answer is found in the third attitude, we trust in God. We simply put our trust in God. No bells, no whistles. Notice what Peter says in verse seven. This is great. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen indeed. That's the way we remain under the mighty hand of God. We trust him because he really does care for you. He really, really does. God is always good. Nothing is happening by chance. There's a purpose in all of it. And as we endure it humbly and submissively, we find our strength in the midst of the trials by means of confident trust in God's perfect purpose. But don't ever kid yourself into thinking we are so easily humbled or I've arrived. Oh, I have zero proudness in my life. It takes a lot of prayer, it takes a lot of confession of sin as we stumble, and it takes total trust and a loving and caring God. I can't humble myself during testing if I don't believe that God cares for me, but I can if I do. I can if I do. And so Peter says, you have to have an attitude of trust. And what are we trusting? That you can cast all your cares on him, all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And you're able to say, Lord, oh, man, this is so difficult. Lord, I can't handle this this testing, this, this trial, but I'm going to cast the entire thing onto you because I know that the creator of the universe cares for me. And he knows what I got going on right now down here. This word for casting means throwing something onto something or someone. For example, in Luke 19.34, it's used there for throwing their their coats onto the occult. So Peter says, man, just cast it all onto him. Just throw all your worries, all your cares, all that anxiety. Cast it onto him because he cares for you. What's anxiety mean? It says anxiety. He mentions it here. All the discontentment and discouragement and despair and questioning and wondering and suffering and all the pain that you've gone through. Just give it all to him. Give it all to him as you turn it into trust into God who really does care for you. Hannah is a great illustration of this and we'll close with this little story Um, you remember she's without a son and for a Jewish woman um, not to have a little boy her heart was broken of course there was a whole competition thing and that was difficult enough for her but in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 10 it says that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly she was one broken hearted woman She really was. And at this time, God had her, if you read this chapter, God had her under his testing. The womb was sealed. God was on it. He had something in this whole thing. So God's got her under his mighty hand of testing. Verse 11. Watch how she responds to it. So she made a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. I'll not only give him back to you, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a Nazarene vow uh, for him so that he'll give no attention to his physical looks and he'll desire, devote his entire life to you And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, and only her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being a drunk? Put your wine away from you. Oh, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. And then she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. If you uh, keep reading the story down, verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. But what happened to her here in verse 18? It says she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Why? How is it no longer sad? Nothing had yet changed. No, but what had she done with her burden? She had casted all of her cares unto the Lord. That's the issue. Why? Because, beloved, he cares for you. He really, truly cares for you. There's a verse I think Peter probably had in mind when he wrote this, Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Isn't that good? He will never let the righteous be shaken. Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Paul, Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply, how much? All your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Peter just says, let's get back to the basics, folks. Our spiritual maturity begins with some just basic fundamentals, an attitude of submission to those in spiritual authority, an attitude of humility towards one another and to God, and an attitude of trust that says, I'm going to cast all my cares on him because I know he cares for me. If we can go through our trials with these spiritual attitudes, we can, in fact, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time, he may exalt you. Trust starts first by believing in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, however, who bled and died on the cross for our sins, who on the third day rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, our pride lets us think, oh, I'm a good person, I don't need all that. But pride, my friend, goes before destruction a haughty spirit before the fall. Cast all of your sins onto the cross at Calvary where Christ paid the debt. There he paid what was owed for us. And now we just put our trust into the finished work of Christ because he cares for you. More than that, he died for you so that the proper time he may exalt you. If uh, you have prayers this morning or if God has convicted uh, your heart today, um, you're welcome to come forward. Um, At this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we praise the Lord, our living hope.